0: Indeed, it starts with us, and the reality is that it not only starts with us here within the church, but it starts with us in our home lives, and that we are to be people whose character, conduct, and competency reflect the Lordship of Jesus Christ. As we come this morning, we are continuing our study uh, through 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, and this is going to be quite an excitement for you, because uh, as I finished up my work this week, I had six pages of notes on this one section. Uh, that translates roughly to an, about an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and 20 minutes. So we divided it in two. Don't worry. Uh, we'll, we'll be all right. But as we come this morning, I want to let you know we are going to break this apart into two sections this week and next week. Uh, but last week we observed within Scripture that the what the proper leadership structure for God's church was, we said that the ultimate head of the New Testament church is who? Jesus Christ and him alone. He is the head of the New Testament church. And within his church, God has given two scriptural offices to facilitate the flow of the gospel, to complete the task of the Great Commission and to make disciples through the context of the local church. And what were those two offices? Elders, pastors. And deacons. And we see both of those listed within chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. The qualifications are uh, enumerated there. And we see, first of all, the office of pastor, elder, is to oversee the church through concentrated prayer, the faithful proclamation of the word, and the spiritual nurture of God's flock. The second group, the deacons or servants of the church, are to serve the church through meeting and ministering to the physical needs of the church body. Both of these offices are obviously to be held under the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ in a manner that is proper to facilitate the flow of the gospel, the completion of the Great Commission task, and making disciples in the midst of the context of the local church. The importance of understanding biblical qualifications for a leader in the local church is extremely vital and important in the midst of our culture of complacency. It is extremely important because we know human wisdom and And cultural wisdom or worldly wisdom would tell us that the qualifications for a pastor should be what? That he ought to be charming and charismatic, right? And he ought to stand tall and look good. Too bad you missed out, Adamsville Baptist Church. They want us to focus on the externals and not on the internals. They want us to have a bunch of pretty boy preachers who may not be able to fill the pulpit at all. Because they are not faithful to the God who has ordained that pulpit. Indeed, our world leads us to focus on the external while the Bible tells us to focus on the eternal and the internal. We must know the New Testament qualifications for elder pastor. The fundamental principle in church government, once again, is that Christ Jesus is the head of the church and that He is ordained, that His headship is exercised through spiritually mature elders who through character, conduct, example, and servant leadership serve as the under shepherds for Christ's flock here in this world. So we should not vote for elders, pastors in the style of American democracy, who is prideful, who is pompous, popular and powerful. We'll just stick him in the place of the pulpit and let him go. That's not what it says. We are to look deeper at the issues of character, conduct and competency in order to qualify those who would under the authority and leadership of Jesus Christ exercise headship over his church indeed we see here in this passage the qualifications given also in Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 9 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 1 through 4 as we looked at last week all of these are places where the holy spirit of god places an emphasis listen not on the completion of the task, but upon the character, co- conduct, and competency of the man who stands in the pulpit. Let us remind ourselves today of those qualifications for God's leaders, church leaders, according to Scripture. And let us stand now as we take the Bible and read today the virtues that are to be apparent in the, in the leader of God's church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7 through seven. And this is what the Word of God says. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil? And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable Able to teach. Father, today we come to you and we see these virtues that are presented to us within God's word. And Father, we thank you, Father, for that revelation that you have given to us. Lord, we ask now that we might study, understand, and apply each of these principles into our lives. And Father, that we might have lives that show and share the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of a culture gone all wrong. Lord, we ask today that your spirit would be here and, Father, that he would speak to our hearts, convict us of our sin, show us our sin, and show us our Savior. And, Lord, as always, we ask now that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, here in this passage, we see that Christ exercises headship over His church through spiritually mature elders who edify, equip, and shepherd His flock to fulfill gospel ministry. In the Scriptures, we see that Jesus Christ exercises headship or authority over His church through spiritually mature elders who edify, equip, and shepherd His flock to fulfill gospel ministry. Indeed, these these pastors' elders are facilitating the flow of the gospel, completing the task of the Great Commission and making disciples in the context of the local church as they do the work that God has ordained for them to do. This morning as we begin, I want to first of all let you see that this list is a description of Christian maturity. It is a description of Christian maturity. As we begin, we, we want, I want all of us to be aware that this description of the leaders should describe for us what is to be sought out for the man that desires to do the work of ministry as an under-shepherd in God's church. In other words, when you start to look for a pastor, hopefully you won't take up that task anytime soon, but when you do start to look for a pastor, this list should, should absolutely spell out the character, conduct, and competency of the man of God that you would look for. But secondly, understand this. It is not over over, or above the character conduct and competency for any Christian indeed, this passage it is almost it is almost exceptional how unexceptional this list is indeed, this list proves out it tells us. What is to be present within the life of the Christian? Every one of these virtues that we see within this passage are elsewhere in Scripture described for every Christian to be living out. So, ladies, if you were getting ready to say, well, you know what? This message isn't for me. I'm not qualified to be an elder, an overseer, a a pastor uh, because I'm not a man. I'm just going to take this one off. Don't do it, ladies, because indeed, all of these characteristics should be lived and should be present. Within the Christian life whether you are a man that aspires to the office of a pastor, elder, overseer, or you desire to be a consistent Christian witness in the midst of your family, your friends, and your community, you need to be living out a life that testifies to the transformational nature, the changing nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that He is able to take a sinner and to make Him a saint, to change the way in which we live, act, and speak in the course of our life. D.A. Carson says of these qualifications, this list is most notable for not being very notable at all. Paul, who are you and what qualifies you to be a minister? Do you remember what his answer was there in chapter 1? I'm a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, and I'm a violent man. Good. Sign him up, put him in the pulpit, right? That's the kind of guy you want, the kind of character you want in the pulpit, right? Yes, I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was a violent man, but now by the grace of God I have been changed and transformed and now I am living according to the fruit of the Holy Spirit that I cannot contain in my life because He is living through me. Indeed, every Christian should desire to be a mature Christian exercising character, conduct, and competency within a life that has been changed and transformed by the gospel. But secondly, we see in verse 1 that there is to be a desire for the good work. There is to be a desire for the good work. Indeed, the overseer, under-shepherd of God's flock is to devote himself to facilitating the flow of the gospel, completing the Great Commission, and making disciples in the context of the local church of those that receive. Jesus Christ is Lord the point of leadership within the local church is just this to bring glory to God by commending the truthfulness of the gospel to all both those inside the church and those outside of the church. Our desire is to bl- bring glory to God and minister the truthfulness of the gospel to all people at all times in all places, the, both those who are inside the church and those who are outside the church. That is the point. And it ought to be upon the pastor's heart to do the work. This is work. This is labor. If you want me to spell it out, as spelled J O be job this is a task it is to be met in that way it is an occupation that all are to give themselves to, especially those men who are set apart to fill the office or role of overseer. The shepherds, overseers, elders of God's flock are to be diligent in fulfilling the their duties to facilitate the gospel ministry within the local church body. They shouldn't be like the cash register attendant there at McDonald's last week when I walked up and I said, Hey man, I, I want to get a get a number one and you know, I, I want it made in this way and here's my money and you know what it was just like they didn't even care I was an inconvenience to them They weren't happy to have the job. They weren't flowing over with the ability that they have to work for something within this world. They just sat there and I, you know, I place my order. I go and I tell them what I want. And it's an inconvenience for him to promptly and properly take down my order, get my money, and give me back the change and the food that I have ordered that he might be employed so that God might provide for his needs in the midst of his life. You ever known a pastor that saw his duty like that? Who was always demoralized? Didn't like serving others and ministering to others? That's not the approach that we are to have. There's to be pride in completing the task that God has given uh, and ordained of devoting ourselves to prayer, to study and proclamation of the word, and to the promotion of gospel centered discipleship as seen in Acts chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. Indeed, there was, a, there was uh, a disturbance that had arisen among the people, among the church, and there was a problem that was going on. Uh, certain widows were not being able, uh, were not being being given food. And so to resolve this, the 12, the apostles called themselves together and the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said to them, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the work. That, I believe, is the beginning of this dual off, the dual offices that we see in First Timothy chapter three, both the elders and the deacons. The elders are overseeing the spiritual ministry. They are uh, consistently devoting themselves to prayer, studying and applying and proclaiming God's word, promoting, uh, promoting uh, biblically-based, gospel-centered discipleship. And then the deacons are ministering and caring for the physical needs so that the pastors might be able to, to, devote, the, to devote themselves to that. Indeed, it is not a position of status, it is a position of service in ministering to God's church. And the elder is to desire to do the good work of gospel ministry through prayer, proclamation, and promotion. Indeed, it would be a tragedy if the pastor was to alienate those positions that he was given and those responsibilities that God had ordained. As we come, we need to understand that we are to devote ourselves to be good workmen, doing the good work of gospel ministry through prayer proclamation and promotion. But thirdly, this morning, we see the virtues that are to be apparent in the pastor, the virtues that are to be apparent in the pastor. And we find them uh, this morning in verses 2, 4, and 5. That's where we're going to look to see. And this morning, we're going to look at the virtues that are to be apparent in the pastor. Next week, we're going to look at the vices that are to be avoided in the pastor. But this morning, we're going to concentrate on those virtues. Indeed, this list of 15 qualities of the Christian life that commend a man to hold the position of pastor, overseer, elder uh, is a very wide and spacious list. It touches on almost every area of life. Indeed, it is not exhaustive, but it is a complete list that touches into every area of of our life, if you want an in-depth study, I highly recommend and commend uh, the book that Gene Getz has published, "The Measure of a Man," which is on the pastor's picks uh, bookshelf back here, and you can pick it up and read at any point because it goes deep into all of these uh, qualifications. But we, uh, because of our time time constraints are going to go over the surface of these and see exactly what it means to be a man who is qualified to exercise authority and leadership under the headship of Jesus Christ in the church of the living God. We are going to see this morning in verses 2 and 3 the virtues that are to be apparent in this pastor elder's life. And first of all, Paul says the first qualification for the officer, uh, for the overseer, is what? must be above reproach. Above reproach. He is to be above reproach in every way. This does not mean that he is somehow perfect or that he never stumbles, that he never struggles with sin. Rather, this is a lifelong process that occurs. It's not something that just fits and starts. And sometimes he's above reproach. Sometimes he's not. Sometimes he's good. Sometimes he's bad. This simply means not that charges will not come against the man of God, but when charges come against the man of God, they cannot stand. They can't be validated because upon taking the whole testimony of his life, you see that he is above reproach, unable to be held by the charges that might compromise Jesus Christ and his church. Indeed. We understand all of us are sinners by nature and by choice. Saved only by the grace of God through the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the the atoning death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. We all have shortcomings and we all have sin. But the question is, do we indulge in sin to the detriment of God's work in our witness, in our church, in our community, and in our family, in His home life, in His personal life, in His business, business life, the elder, the pastor is living, is to be living in obedience to God's word, consistently living in obedience to God's word. And when he finds sin within his life, when he faces sin in the midst of his life, he judges himself rightly and he instantaneously seeks forgiveness from God and from others. He's to be above reproach, a man of integrity. What kind of man do you want? A man that you have to worry about what he's going to be doing and saying all around the community, or a man that you know his heart is centered on loving God and loving people in a gospel centered way. Indeed, do we choose the stuff in this world, or do we, do we love the stuff of this world, or love the Savior that God has given to us? We must be people whose lives cannot stand or whose whose lives bear out the charges against us of wickedness and evil and sin cannot stand. Secondly, Paul, what do you mean by above reproach? Well, Paul goes on and he lists out 14 things that qualify a person as being above reproach, the husband of one wife, uh, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money, and so on. He goes on all the way through verse seven and lays out what it means for the man of God to be above reproach. Now, oftentimes we don't think about that because we see a comma and not a colon at the behind above reproach. But really, we can understand the rest of this list is saying what indeed it means to be a man who is above reproach in his life. First of all, he is to be the husband of how many wives? How many? One wife. The husband of one wife. Literally, the Greek means here a one woman man. He's a one woman man. There's no concern about if he's running around or what he's doing in his own time, in his private life behind closed doors. You're not worried about it because you know he is a man who is faithful, who is filled with faithfulness and fidelity for his wife. In other words, the faithfulness and fidelity of the man in the office of overseer is not able to be questioned due to his sexual behavior in both physical purity as well as mental purity. And hear me well, guys. It is not just physical outward purity. It is mental purity that is qualified for the mature man of God as well. Ladies, that goes for you too. For the for the ladies, it is physical and mental purity before God that matters. Why? Because Jesus Christ in His Sermon on the Mount said what? If you have looked at a woman with lust in your heart, it is as if you have committed adultery. So we need to understand that and we need to apply it rightly. In both physical purity and mental purity, the man of God is to be above reproach. There is to be nothing that grounds a charge against him in uh, truthfulness. In addition, his home life, according to verse 4 and 5, is to be ordered and structured. He must be one who manages his own household well keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of the living God? His marriage, his family, and his finances are to be handled with the utmost integrity. Indeed, this is crucial and key because what is being laid out is that the man of God and his testimony does not begin behind the pulpit. It begins in the home. It doesn't begin when you stand up and take on a role of leadership. It begins with who you are and what you do in your homes. That's where it begins. And so we understand, we need to establish that the testimony, of, the testimony of this passage is that a minister is no more in public than what he is in private. And a priority for the relationships of the minister are to be as follows. Number one, his relationship to God. Number two, his relationship to his family, particularly his wife and then his children. And number three, his relationship to the church. In that order. First of all, relationship to God. Secondly, to his family. Thirdly, to the church. Those are the priorities. And indeed, how in the world is he going to be a faithful minister if he can't even manage those that he has been given within the realm of his household to disciple them in a proper manner? Now, as we look at this, I want to go through a few things and I'm just going to uh, blast through some of these things. And I, I apologize, we're going to come back and study some more in-depth things later because this will come up again. But I want, I want you to understand, uh, here within this passage is a place where we find a great deal of controversy in the midst of the church. Indeed, there is much debate about what this means. This passage means as to the one woman man. What exactly does that entail? How does it play out? What does it look like? Who's qualified and who's not qualified? Immediately there is a lot of heat that is generated from that debate without very much light. Isn't there? A lot of heat that gets generated in that debate, but not a whole lot of light. Well, let's take a look at it and see if we can bring it into some light and shed the light of God's uh, wisdom upon it. First of all, I want to inform you there are at least uh, four different uh, interpretations of this. Uh, a wooden application would say that this passage disqualifies all singles, all men who have ever been divorced and remarried, all men who have even been... There's another interpretation that applies it to all men who have been widowed and remarried. And finally, that polygamists are... are. Uh, are disqualified from holding the office. Now, indeed, there's little doubt in this case that a one-woman man disqualifies polygamy, doesn't it? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. Because how can you be a one-woman man when you're, what? Got two women. I don't know why you'd want two wives, but that's okay. (laughs) One's just enough, I think. But we need to understand, does this disqualify single men? Well, if you're going to say that this disqualifies single men, I want you to understand one thing. Uh, You are not just disqualifying single men, but you are also disqualifying anyone who doesn't have at least two children. Because later on it says he must manage his children, and that's in the plural sense. So it must be a man who has at least one wife, or, or only one wife, and at least two children. If you're going to be legalistic about it, you got to be all the way. Well, let me just tell you a few years back before I came to be the pastor of your church, I spent about a year to a year and a half of wondering and praying and searching out because I had always held that I needed to be married before I was a pastor. And as I studied the scriptures, I had to come to the fact that I was interpreting it very woodenly and very structurally. And I was actually missing out on a point. Now, let me be very explicit. It is very helpful to have a wife in ministry. Why? Because guess what? There were a lot of people who needed counseling in that first year that I was here who didn't want to come see me because I couldn't understand what they were going through in their marriage because I wasn't married. Understand. I understand the wisdom of having it, but is it a qualification? I don't believe it is, as we'll say later. Uh, But secondly... uh, Issues about widowed and remarried. And, and the reality is. Within the text of scripture. There is a very clear allowance. Once the f- spouse is dead. Then the person is free to remarry. Um, and that is just the testimony. And text of scripture. And so we need to understand. That when the person's spouse dies. They are free under scripture to remarry. And so rightly understood. Uh, there should be no. Uh, withholding of that office. From those persons as well. Uh, thirdly. Uh, or finally, the, the issue of divorce and remarriage. And let's just be honest, this is a place a lot of heat is generated, isn't it? The issue of divorce and remarriage. And I'm not going to finally and for all time settle it for any of you. You ought to search out the, the word, see what it says, and rightly apply it so that you might understand exactly what is being pointed to. But I want to at least say this. Does it matter that the divorce happened before the person became a Christian or not? Does it matter that the divorce happened, the circumstances surrounding the divorce and in how it occurred? Yes, it matters. Now, let me also say, very rarely have I ever found that a divorce occurred because one side did all evil and the other side was perfectly angelic. Very, very rarely have I ever come across that. So we need to be guarded. But the clear proclamation is there are times and places within Scripture that divorce is allowed. Now, me personally, I never understand. I never counsel any person towards pursuing divorce. I don't. But I must be honest, the text of Scripture allows times where divorce is able to be pursued. There are places and times that it is able to be pursued. So I understand that there, this is an issue of great difficulty. Uh, there is little doubt that at least in this, this passage, polygamy is disqualified. Those other issues need to be settled and searched out for ourselves so that we agree with the Word of God. And since these other qualities deal with the moral or spiritual characteristics of the individual's life, I think the best view is that a one woman man is a man who is intimately related only to his wife. That he has one wife and his fidelity and his faithfulness are expressed each and every moment of his life toward only that one woman. In other words, that he would be a heterosexual, monogamous, faithful and pure man of God. He is a faithful husband. He is not a flirt nor enslaved to the sin of mental lust. Whether single or married, he must have an extended track record of mental and physical sexual purity. As a church, Adamsville Baptist Church has traditionally held to... the qualification of no divorce and no remarriage. And I understand that this is a view that the theolo- within the theological mainstream of con- conservative evangelical Christian doctrine, and I think that setting the bar high higher rather than lower is a very, very good thing. I understand why we have it there, and understand this, I honor it, and I respect it, and we'll apply it as long as the congregation we feel that that is the direction that we need to go in. But an elder must be a one-woman man, one man in thought and in deed. If a church leader commits sexual sin in the midst of his life, he needs to relinquish or to be removed from any position of leadership, lest the witness and work of the individual of the church, and therefore Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, ever be compromised. We need to be explicit in that. It's amazing to me. All these churches going through all these problems. And oh, did you hear about the pastor that ran off with the chairman of Deacon's Why? And the church had meeting after meeting and everybody quoted everything. And, you know, some people quoted from the church constitution. Some people quoted from the American constitution. Nobody ever stopped to quote from First Timothy chapter 3 because the issue would have been settled. A one woman man. That's it. One woman. Mentally, physically pure to that one woman. Thirdly, he is to be tempered we've got to fly through these temperate or sober minded. This is a man who is clear headed in the original language. It intimates that it is not mixed with wine. A pastor needs to exercise sober and sensible judgment in all things. And this is very important for those who are making decisions, facilitating the flow of the gospel, completing the task of the Great Commission and discipling those within the church. For, fourthly, he is to be a man who is prudent, self-controlled. He must have a serious attitude and be in earnest about his work. This does not mean he has no sense of humor, but rather that he is therefore always solemn and somber. In other words, listen to me and listen to me well. I am not somehow so strangely holy that I wear suits to bed at night. Uh, that's not what he's talking about. Indeed, to dwell above with those we love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with those we know, well, that's a different story. We can laugh. We can have a good time. There are going to be faults and there are going to be failures, but understand we are to be prudent or self-controlled. We know the value of things and we do not cheapen the ministry or the gospel message by foolish behavior in the context of our community. Indeed, isn't that a good thing for each and every one of us here this morning to commit ourselves to? That we would not be foolish in our conduct so that we might compromise the gospel, but rather that we would be prudent and self-controlled. Fifthly, we are to be respectable, orderly, and of good behavior it points to a person who lives in a well order decent life in every area so that he is becoming to the Lord and becoming to the Lord's Word. In other words, he is increasingly committing himself to being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ as he studies and works out his salvation with fear and trembling. We need to be people who are doing that. We need to be people who are respectable. When people look in, one of the greatest issues that comes to me, why won't you come to church? Well, because they're a bunch of hypocrites. Not respectable. The reality is we have lived that out in many of our lives. But our lives should be open to share the gospel and to show the transformation God has wrought within us. Sixthly, we are to be hospitable lovers of strangers. He is quick here to open his. this man is quick uh, to open his heart and his home to others. He is not afraid of um, to meet new people and to invite them in and to make them feel relaxed and welcome. Indeed all Christians are exhorted to pursue hospitality according to Romans chapter 12 verse 13 and also to be hospitable without complaint. According to First Peter chapter 4 verse 9, we understand that these are opportunities for us to open up our homes and our hearts to show and to share the love of God in this world. I'll give you two quick ways that we do that within my own home. First of all, every Christmas we love to have out the church family as we celebrate Christmas at the pastor so that everybody can come see the house and see that the pastor has problems just like everybody else because the garage is not organized all the time. But the home is open. Tuesday nights, we have a group of uh, young guys that are coming over for discipleship and accountability for us to get into the Word, to pour over our lives, to see where we are struggling and to increasingly be conformed to the image of Christ. Our doors are wide open so that people can come in, see that we are not perfect, but see that we are living by the perfect love of God shed abroad in our hearts and lives. And it is increasingly changing us and transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. And that is the testimony that is to be seen within the local church. Seventh, able to teach. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, this is what Paul says. He says there, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Indeed, some elders should concentrate on preaching and teaching while others do not, but indeed in First Timothy Titus or in Titus chapter one, verse nine, he Paul further illuminates this qualification of being able to teach in this way when he comes back and he qualifies it and he says it this way, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in biblical in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Able to teach for Paul means that the person knows Scripture in such a way that he knows it well enough to set forth right doctrine and to refute wrong doctrine. I don't like doctrine, pastor. Okay, but it's my job to teach it to you. And it's my job to teach it well. It is our job as pastors, elders, to be able to set before you right doctrine and to refute Wrong doctrine. And since indeed this man of God must be a man of the word who also understands people so that he can guide people, God's people into the luscious pastures of God's word. Indeed, it ought to be true of every single pastor at this church and every single pastor of any New Testament church. When you go to them with a problem, they shouldn't sit there and psychologize and, and philosophize about all the little issues that might be going on they ought to be men of the word and you ought to be marked by the fact that every time a pastor gets up in in this pulpit to preach he doesn't just stand up and start talking about his latest thoughts and his greatest thoughts because after all they are vanity and fleeting and useless but understand when we get up we read the word and then we preach not our thoughts but what God's word says that's I don't know. Every time I go to the pastors, they're always opening up their Bibles and pointing to Scripture. Good. Right. That is who we are. Men of the word who rightly divide the Scripture and present right doctrine and refute wrong doctrine. Richard Baxter said this in a word of admonition uh, to those pastors uh, who would be following in his footsteps. He said, Take heed to yourselves, lest your example contradict your doctrine, and lest you lay such stumbling blocks before the blind as may be the occasion of their ruin, lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues and be the greatest hindrances of the success of your own labors. One proud, surly, Lordly word, one needless contention, one covetous action may cut the throat of many a sermon and blast the fruit of all that you have been doing. Pastors. We are to set ourselves apart to be men of virtue who excel with these virtues apparent to those who are looking into our lives, men of in Adamsville Baptist Church, mature Christian men, these are the virtues that are to be apparent within your life. Whether you are a pastor, elder, or not, these are what is to be apparent in your life. Ladies, not a pastor, elder, okay. These are virtues that are to be apparent in your life. Indeed, these virtues are to be apparent. In our lives, as we desire to do the good work of the gospel ministry, as God leads his church to facilitate the flow of the gospel, complete the Great Commission and make disciples. But pastor, I'm inadequate, I'm helpless and I'm hopeless. Pastor, I'm just not right. I never can live this life. You're exactly right. You can't live it. I can't live it. No person in this world could ever live up to the qualifications God has given for rightness, for purity, and for holiness. Only one person ever who has lived has lived perfectly in every area of life. And His name is Jesus Christ. And this is a wonderful message of the Gospel. You can't live it. I can't live it. You're hopeless. I'm helpless. Indeed, we together are drowning. And yet, God in the gospel in his richness of in the richness of his grace and his glory said i am making him who had no sin to be sin for you so that you and him might be the righteousness of god and when you surrender to the person and work of jesus christ who took your place and took your penalty on the cross of calvary He gives you the Holy Spirit to mete out this type of life, to fill you with the fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, so that you might share and show the gospel transformation that God has made in your life and my life. Let me ask you this morning, as you minister in your community around this church to your friends and family, do they know the difference that God has made in you? Can they see the transformed life? Do they see the virtues which are present within the New Testament that describe the Christian? As a church, we need to hold ourselves accountable to living out that type of life in each of our lives. But as a church, we also need to have for ourselves this example for what the pastor, elder, overseer is to be within the flock, Of the living God today. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, we ask now that we would surrender each and every